Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and the title of this week's episode is The Proxima Centauri B Beat Up with Dr. Elizabeth Tasker, The Radio Window Part 2 with Dr. Nadezhda Sherbakov, and Dr. Ian Musgrave says, What's up, Doc? And explains about the wow signal. Today is Wednesday, the 7th of September, 2016. Each session, we'll have co-presenters. We'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. As usual, we'll begin with a quick cross over to Tver in Russia. Hello, Nadezhda. Привет, Brendan. How are you going? I'm going very well, thanks, Nadezhda. What have you got for us this week? Well, first of all, Brendan, I had a listen to last week's show, and it was okay, despite the talk about aliens, which I found quite distracting. So, Mojipit, you are a little bit forgiven. That's good to know, Nadezhda. Just don't let it go to your head, okay? Now, last week I introduced the idea of the radio and optical windows through our atmosphere. This week we are going to zoom in a little closer through the radio window and look at the famous 21 centimeter line. And as an added bonus, we will begin by eavesdropping with the help of NASA on the Juno spacecraft as it listens to auroras. That sounds awesome. Well, we'll get back to you very soon. We now do a quick Skype cross to Japan. How are you, Elizabeth? Good, thanks. Very good. It's my pleasure today to speak with Dr. Elizabeth Tasker, and welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Tell us about your background, Elizabeth, and how you initially became interested in science and then became involved in astrophysics. Well, for most of my childhood and school years, I really wanted to be a vet. I'd read all the James Herriot books about the British vet who travels around Yorkshire caring for farm animals and people's pets and really thought, you know, what better life was there than driving around in some tin pot old car to stuff your hand up a cow's rear end. (laughs) Uh, Clearly, clearly this was the life that everyone must want. I wanted to do it. Then Around about 13 or 14, my school put us all through a careers workshop and we did a bunch of aptitude tests and filled in this extended questionnaire about our interests. And after this, we had like a one-on-one interview with a teacher. So I sat down at the end of all these tests and she said to me, so Elizabeth, you said you wanted to be a vet. And I was like, absolutely right. That is my calling. This is what I want to do. And she said, you do realize that you're not particularly keen on outdoor activities and you actually have expressed almost zero interest in biology. To which I said, well, you know, what's your point? And she just passed over this careers assessment form. And the top job was writer, and the second job was astronomer. 
and told me to go away and reconsider my life choices. So uh, from there, I went on and specialised in maths and physics and did indeed drop biology. And then I went and read physics at university. And then in my fourth year, I attended a course on cosmology run by Professor Carlos Frank at Durham University and realised that I could combine my love of computer games and spend my life really building universes in my computer. Ah. And that would give me a feeling like a, a minor deity. So possibly this was an even greater calling than putting your hand up up inside a cow. And so I went for it from there. Very good. Elizabeth, tell us about your PhD thesis first and then your subsequent research and the different organisations and institutions you've been in. So uh, with the idea that, you know, building universes and feeling like a god was a great career option. I applied for PhD positions in computational astrophysics, and that took me to Oxford to work with Professor Greg Bryan. And our cornerstone of our work there was looking at how the gas in galaxies form stars. And from there, Greg actually moved during my PhD, and he took up a new professorship at Columbia University in New York City. And there was an option there to spend a few months at Swinburne Institute of Technology. So I actually wrote most of my thesis at Swinburne uh, while interacting with the group there. Um, but then from there, I took up postdoctoral positions at the University of Florida and at McMaster University in Canada before accepting a faculty position at the University of Hokkaido in Japan. Right. Now, I believe you moved to Japan five years ago now. So how's that transition going? So astrophysics, I mean, it's such an international field. There's only about three men and a dog really working in this area. So in some ways, it doesn't really matter where you're based. Departments operate fairly similarly. But that said, there are certainly some differences with working in Japan. I would say one of the struggles that I continuously have is with names. So for example, in universities I worked in, in Europe and America and Australia, anyone above a grad student, you just use your first name. So I'd just be Elizabeth. Yep. But in Japan, it's pretty common to use the family name, even among fairly close friends. So you have family name plus a suffix that indicates your seniority or sometimes even your gender. Uh, so I'm typically Elizabeth-san or Obitaska-san in Japan, which is like Wuztaska. Yep. And this, this largely works, but of course, everyone also understands that in Western countries, you use the first name. So we end up using a mix in our laboratory where sometimes people call me Tasker-san and sometimes people call me Elizabeth-san. And that works fine, except when I'm trying to write an email to another colleague who isn't Japanese. So for example, one of my students goes almost exclusively by his family name. And when I write to one of our colleagues in Australia, like, do I switch to his first name, even though I've never called him that myself? Or do I keep using his family name, even though that would be a very strange translation to suddenly refer to him as Mr. You know, in an email where I'm referring to myself as Elizabeth and my colleague by their first name. So what tends to happen is we all use a mix. And typically, as a result, no one knows which is the first name or which is the family name. Okay. Uh, <laughs> which can lead to some confusion. I'm sure you'll work it out. The first five years are the toughest, they say. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about where you're currently working? What does your working week look like, Elizabeth? So at the moment, I'm at Hokkaido University. It's in the city of Sapporo, which is on the northern island of Hokkaido in Japan. During my week, I have a variety of uh, 
activities. I teach an undergraduate physics course and my my class is very international. I teach in English. So typically my students are from all over the world studying at Hokkaido with a few brave Japanese students deciding to risk an English physics course. Yep. Then I also meet with my graduate students and we discuss their projects. I still find time for my own research. And I also started and have run Kaido University blog, where I discussed different research at the university, sort of roughly once a month. So that would be a pretty typical week. Very good. Now, I looked at some of the research papers you've done, and there's a couple of recent ones that you've published on giant molecular clouds. Can you tell us, firstly, what is a giant molecular cloud and why you study it? And then can you tell us about some of the technologies that you use to study things like giant molecular clouds? Right, so a giant molecular cloud is really like a nursery for stars. So these are clouds of cold gas in the galaxy, and it's where we expect really all the star formation to occur. So if a star is being born, the properties of these clouds, their mass, their size, how the gas is moving inside them, these are going to be what the star first feels. So really, they're going to be governing when and where a star is formed. So understanding how these clouds form and what happens to them during their lifetime and indeed how long they live gives us an insight into how stars form in a galaxy like our own Milky Way. Yep. So to study this, my work is computational. So I build really a model of the galaxy inside a supercomputer. And I start off with a very simple picture of a galaxy, really just a rotating disk of gas. And I let that gas cool. And as it does, it starts to clump and fragment as gravity pulls on the gas. And it creates these clouds. And I can track them through the simulation and ask, you know, how long are you living? What's happening to you during your lifetime? Are you meeting other clouds? Are you just ticking along quietly? Does the star formation inside you destroy you? That sort of thing. Okay, so you're building these models and these are digital models. What language do you use to build that model? So the code I use is called ENSO. It's one of the major codes used in astrophysics. There's quite a number, but ENSO is mine. Well, ENSO is the one I use. It's certainly not just mine. (laughs) It's written in actually a mixture of languages, C++ and Fortran. Wow, Fortran's been around since 1972, at least. And then to analyse the simulation and sort of pick out these clouds and find out what they're doing, I use an analysis package called YT, which is written in Python. Yep, very good. Now, the internet lit up like a beacon. It went supernova this week. We had the news that at Proxima B, it was discovered to be Earth-like. It was habitable. There were aliens there. And I saw a piece of writing that you did on it, which brought us back to Earth a little bit, so to speak. And I thought it was so good. That's why we contacted you in the first place. I've made a tiny Earl for So for our listeners, we'd recommend they go and read this Scientific American blog by Dr. Elizabeth Tasker. It's at tinyearl.com forward slash etasker. Centaurus Proxima B, can you explain exactly what we know about this planet? Right. So unfortunately for anyone who is currently packing a suitcase, the only (laughs) thing we actually know about this planet is we know the minimum mass. So we don't even know its exact mass. We just know the lower estimate for it. Yep. And the lower estimate does indeed say 
it is slightly larger than Earth, about 30% more massive. Yep. But that's not enough to start holiday vacation. Okay. Because it could be an awful lot larger. It could be so large that it's not even rocky, but is actually more like a version of Neptune. And I don't think any of us really want to spend our summer holidays at Neptune. So we have a minimum mass, and we also know the star it's orbiting, it's proxy Centauri, and we know how close it is to that star. It's actually extremely close. It's only 5% of the distance the Earth is from the sun wow. to its star. Okay. So a whole year on Proxima Centauri B is over in just over a week, about 11.2 days. Yep. So this might instantly rule out really anything interesting, and it doesn't. This discovery is genuinely exciting. The thing about Proxima Centauri is that it's a complete weakling. It's what we call a red dwarf or dwarf star, yep. which means it only has about 10% of the sun's mass. So, in fact, the amount of heat and light that this planet receives is about two-thirds of what we get on Earth. But, of course, that doesn't really tell you, in fact, it doesn't tell you at all what the surface conditions of the planet are like. Right. If, and this is a huge if, if the planet was Earth, then it might be warm enough to support liquid water on the surface. Yep. But... Is the planet like Earth? I mean, we only have a minimum mass. We don't know anything about its atmosphere. We don't know whether it's even rocky for sure. So there's a huge amount of assumptions to assume that the conditions on the surface are anywhere close to what's needed to support water. And then we don't even know if water would even be there. Very good. So we've seen so much hyperbolic reporting, Elizabeth. Can you explain how the terms habitable and habitability are being abused and how there's other indices being used that don't actually impact on any sort of quantitative meaning of habitability? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky game. And I understand why people are confused. I mean, for a start, let's face it, we all want to find aliens. So yes. there's a huge temptation that <laughs> as soon as we see something where the mass or the radius is about Earth-like to get very, very excited. And excitement is justifiable. I mean, it's only since 1995 that we've known of any planets, or at least many planets, outside our solar system. So it's okay to be thrilled by this. But we can't say anything yet about habitability. And I think one of the points of the confusion is that scientists often talk about something called the habitable zone. Yep. And this is the region around the star where the light and heat coming from the star would allow surface water to exist on a planet that's like the Earth. Yes. And by like the Earth, I mean an atmosphere and surface pressure that match our planet. Now, in reality, how likely is that? Well, we just don't know. If the atmosphere, if the planet is more massive than the Earth, then it might still be rocky, but it might pull down an atmosphere that's much, much thicker, leading to a more Venus-like atmosphere and surface conditions, which most certainly is not supporting liquid water. Exactly. So all the habitable zone tells us is it tells us about the location of the planet. It does not tell us anything at all about the planet itself. Indeed, around the habitable zones of stars we know, I believe there are roughly five times the number of gas giants like Jupiter than there are planets that we suspect might be rocky. Okay. And it doesn't matter where you put Jupiter. Jupiter is never 
going to be habitable. Yeah, just like Venus and Mars. Exactly. Okay. Now, that reminds me of Carl Sagan. He said that if we make extraordinary claims, we also need extraordinary levels of evidence. Yes, and the disappointing fact is we just don't have it. What we typically have for a planet is either the radius or the minimum mass. If we're really lucky, and unfortunately at the moment we're not for Proxima Centauri b, we might have both, and that could give us a bulk density. But there's still not enough to start understanding surface conditions. So until we can start probing the atmosphere of these planets, we can't really say anything about light to stand on the surface. Until we can say that, how can we start talking about life? Very good. We don't even know if this planet passes in front of it. No, we don't know yet whether the planet transits. If it did, we could get a radius, and then we could start at least determining if the planet was likely to be rocky. At the moment, it's all guesswork. Yep. Okay, Elizabeth, we can finish off now with your personal take on astrophysics and science in general? Right, well, I guess since I'm a female astronomer, it makes a little bit of sense to talk about women in astronomy, which uh, we're still rather underrepresented. Uh, When I first took my position at Hokkaido University, it was actually what's called a positive discrimination position, which means that it was only open to female applicants. And before taking the position, I admit I was pretty sceptical. My concern with positive discrimination is that if people think that senior female scientists have been hired under these specialised schemes, they might think the only reason they got hired was because they were a woman. Yep. And that is a, a dangerous route to go by because it means people will say, you know, okay, yes, Elizabeth, you're an associate professor, but let's face it. You know, we tilted that playing court in your favour. You wouldn't possibly have been that good or good enough to take the position if you'd had a fair contest with all astrophysicists, men and women. Yep. And that would cast into doubt all the science of all female astronomers, which is not helping anyone. Yep. So I, I was sceptical of these schemes. But it turns out that I think rather like relationships, when you meet the one you really want, it, none of these reservations really matter. So when I was offered the position at Kaido University, I was very excited to come to Japan. I really wanted to come here. And so I swept my reservations under the carpet and took the post. And after a year, I realized that my reservations were groundless, partly because it wasn't even that I was doing anything special. I was just being here doing my job. At the end of the year, one of my friends who was a graduate student here came to me and she said, I'm going on to a postdoc and I never even would have applied if it wasn't for you. And I was actually astonished because at no point did I sat down and said, hey, you must do a postdoc. All I'd done is I'd asked her what her plans were. But what I realized is having someone there and just showing someone like you the next rung up makes you realize that it's possible. Okay. And that makes a big difference to how people think about whether they could apply for jobs. And, and so what I realized is these positive discrimination positions, you put them there in order to get rid of them. Like there's easily enough very strong female candidates that you're not by any way compromising uh, a position by restricting it only to women. Um, you're going to get a candidate that is definitely worthy of the position. And in doing so, the next time you apply for, next time you open a faculty position, you're going to get you know, several times the number of possible applicants because people and women and minorities will see that this is a completely valid career path. Thank you very much for speaking with us, Elizabeth. No problem at all. Thank you for having me.
That was Dr. Elizabeth Tusker from Hakodai University in Japan. And now we cross back to Dr. Sherbakov in Tver. Let's listen to Jupiter, please. Not so fast, Brendan. First I must tell you a little bit about the noises you are about to hear. Now the 10 second clip you are about to hear was recorded by Juno's radio plasma wave experiment. And it recorded the radio emissions that come from those particles that create the huge auroras, which are circling the gas giant's north pole. Now, this was recorded on August 27, just a week ago, and the signals have been shifted into the audio frequency. The frequency range of these Juno signals go from 7 kilohertz to 140 kilohertz. And 13 hours of this data has been compressed down into about 10 seconds. So if you were in a spacecraft, Brendan, and I hope one day you will be, this is definitely not what you would hear, because this data has been highly manipulated. Then, first of all, they have shifted the frequency range, and secondly, NASA has compressed 13 hours of data down into 10 seconds of audio file. But it still sounds pretty creepy, I think. So now listen to this. Yes, well, that was pretty creepy. Thanks, Nadezhda. Now, you were going to continue on with your radio astronomy theory and talk about the windows through our atmosphere. Yes, well, it turns out that despite us only having a couple of little windows, the electromagnetic spectrum as viewed from Earth is a noisy place. Last week in episode 9, we told you to go to tinyl.com forward slash astrophys to see a very nice diagram of the windows of the electromagnetic spectrum so you can visualize which frequencies are blocked or absorbed by Earth's atmosphere. You can do that again if you need to. You see, if we tune the receivers to low frequencies, we get a lot of galactic noise, which is caused by what we call synchrotron radiation. Now that doesn't mean there's lots of synchrotrons in space, Brendan. By the way, Brendan, have you been to the synchrotron in Melbourne, Australia? No, I'm ashamed to say I haven't, Nadezhda. Well, you must go. It looks very interesting. It's on my bucket list. Hachin Horashio, very good. Now... Synchrotron radiation is created when charged particles spiral down through a star's or a planet's magnetic fields. You might remember last week we spoke of a synchrotron radiation from Jupiter's moon Io being detected in 1955 by Franklin and Burke using their Mills Cross antenna. High frequencies are also very noisy due to quantum effects, which I'm not going to go into today, Brendan. And the whole electromagnetic spectrum has a 3 degree Kelvin background radiation noise, which is from the residual radiation left over from the Big Bang. 
That reminds me that we got a new television about a month ago, and my daughter set it up and we watched it auto-tune itself to pick up our eight or nine channels, including three sports channels which I detest with a passion. In between each channel we saw a lot of static snow, and a little bit of that static noise is a leftover radiation from the Big Bang. So, if you have seen the static noise on your TV, then you have seen a little bit of the Big Bang. So, all of these natural sources of radiation limit our ability to detect emissions from stars and pulsars and Dr. Madison's protoplanetary disks and Dr. Tasker's giant molecular clouds or even from whole galaxies. In addition, the Earth's atmosphere creates its own electromagnetic spectral absorption and emission lines that ruin our view. Luckily, we have some windows through our atmosphere to view the universe. The first window is the obvious optical window because our eyes evolved to see in this window. It is it is the optical window which first allowed us to observe the stars and planets. For radio astronomers, there are other windows, like the microwave window, between about 1 and 10 gigahertz. This frequency range is also called the waterhole, where galaxy noise is at its minimum. The sky background noise is very low in this hole. Of particular interest is the hydrogen line. The 21 centimeter line, or just called the H1 line, which refers to the electromagnetic radiation spectral line that is created by the change in the energy state of neutral hydrogen atoms. And there is a lot of hydrogen in space. It is the main building block for making stars. This H1 line is at a frequency of about 1420 MHz or 1.4 GHz, which is a wavelength of about 21 centimeters. We use these numbers to 12 decimal places to make life difficult for our postdocs. So, this is in the microwave radio region of the electromagnetic spectrum, and it is observed often in radio astronomy because these radio waves can penetrate the large clouds of interstellar cosmic dust that normally blocks the light from distant galaxies and objects of interest. That's it for this week. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you very much, Nadeshta. Stay online because we're going to cross over to Adelaide now and talk with Dr. Ian, astroblogger Musgrave, in What's Up, Doc? Here is the news for Wednesday, 7 September 2016. The first article is adapted from astronomy.com. Juno gets first ever view of Jupiter's North Pole. Some never-before-seen features come to life. 
This is by Carl Engelking. Even from afar, we always knew Jupiter was a bit of an oddball. And upon closer examination, we were correct. On August 27, NASA's Juno spacecraft, with all its instruments blazing, swooped within 2,500 miles of the Jovian surface and beamed back the first ever images of its North Pole. It was the first of 36 planned flybys planned for the mission. So there's plenty more where this came from. Still, even from the first six mega download, Jupiter's revealing why it's unlike any other planet in our solar system. Jupiter is easily recognized by its giant red stormy spot and its distinct latitudinal bands. But at its North Pole, things are different. The clouds are pale blue in color, and those signature bands or zone belts are nowhere to be found. Despite its cooler color, the North Pole is still a stormy place with high-altitude clouds that cast shadows on features below. And to the south, NASA captured infrared images of the southern pole, illuminating its aurora. And I'm sure you enjoyed listening to them earlier in the show. Another first for NASA. So stay tuned. You're going to see and hear much more from Juno in the coming months. Our second story this week probably qualifies as the worst piece of science writing in the history of journalism and goes a long way explaining why Nadezhda will not use the word alien and astronomy in the same sentence. Here's the story and it's from thesun.co.uk. Alien cover-up. Extraterrestrial hunters launch bid to solve mystery of alien signal that's been kept secret for a year. It's by James Hamill. And it goes on to say that some of the world's top alien hunters have stepped in to try and solve the mystery of an alien signal that was spotted last year, but only revealed in the last week. The signal from this distant star looks a lot like our own and has at least one planet orbiting around it, prompting speculation that an advanced alien civilization could be trying to contact us. They're saying Russian astronomers picked up the signal more than a year ago and failed to tell the rest of the world about their astonishing discovery. This unusual decision has prompted UFO spotters to claim there's been a cover-up led by politicians who don't want the world to know about the existence of aliens. There you go. That's from The Sun. What a magnificent newspaper it must be. The Brits are very lucky to have such great <coughs> journalism. That one was especially for you, Nadezhda. And that reminds me. For Christmas this year, I'm going to give Nadezhda a copy of the DVD of the movie called Paul. If you haven't seen this movie, it is hilarious. This next story is from sci-techuniverse.blogspot.com.au and is by Usman Abra. Mysterious object is 570 billion times brighter than the sun. We love big numbers. Billions of light years away... There's a huge ball of hot gas that is brighter than hundreds of billions of suns. It is hard to visualize something so bright, so what is it? Astrophysicists are not really sure, but they have a couple of theories, of course. They think it may be a very infrequent type of supernova called a magnetar, but one so powerful that it pushes the energy limits of physics, or in other words, the most powerful supernova ever seen today. Todd Thompson may have an explanation for this phenomenon. He's Professor of Astronomy at Ohio State. 
the supernova could have produced a very rare type of star called a millisecond magnetar, a swiftly spinning and very dense star with a crazy strong magnetic field. This is how crazy magnetars are. To shine as bright as it does, this magnetar would have to spin at least 1,000 times a second and change all of that rotational energy to light with almost 100% efficiency, making it a most thrilling example of a magnetar that is physically possible. This next story is from ScienceAlert.com by David Neald. NASA plans to send an autonomous submarine to explore Titan's oceans. Subtitled, This is Incredibly Cool. NASA is making plans to send a smart submarine to Saturn's moon Titan so it can autonomously explore the depths of its frigid oceans. The submarine would probe the freezing liquid methane and ethane oceans that cover the moon's surface, beaming back valuable data to Earth. Cryogenics engineer Jason Hartwick announced at the NASA Innovative Advanced Concept Symposium last week. Tech blueprints of the autonomous submarine include a huge communications fin on its back that would let it communicate directly with receivers on Earth, covering a distance of around 1.4 million kilometres. The 6-metre-long, 20-foot sub would also use an interesting ballast system, taking on liquid when it wants to sink and expelling it when it wants to rise. There are no tanks of fuel available on Titan, so using as little energy as possible is going to be crucial. As you might expect, the submarine is going to be packed with all kinds of meteorological tools, including a range of sensors and radar and sonar equipment, plus cameras to build up the best picture possible of what it's actually like on Titan. The moon might be incredibly cold and covered with liquid methane and clouds of cyanide, but it's of interest to scientists because of the way it resembles an early Earth. The sub-design is on hold for now until we see what else NASA's Cassini spacecraft can discover about Titan and its seas. The project is expected to be reassessed by March 2017, and once the design is finalised, it's still going to be some time before the submarine is nosing its way through Titan's oceans. A first mission has been tentatively scheduled for 2038. Our final story is from ScienceAlert.com. This is by Beck Crew. Researchers just found a second Dyson Sphere star, but still no aliens. When astronomers discovered a strange pattern of light near a distant star called KIC 8462852, otherwise known as Tabby Star, it was like nothing anyone had observed before. Now, when a planet passes in front of a star, the star's brightness usually dips by about 1%. But Tabby's star had been experiencing dips of up to 22%, suggesting that something huge is zooming past. And now, a second star with strange dips in brightness has been identified. This one is named Epic 20427 This star is estimated to be about the size of our sun in diameter, but only half its mass. It was discovered by NASA's Kepler spacecraft in 2014, and ever since, a team of astronomers led by Simone Scaringi from the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Germany have been keeping tabs on its dips in light or light curves. And this thing is even stranger than Tabby's star. They report that over 78 days of observations, this new star displayed irregular dipping of up to 65% for around 25 consecutive days. So, something as huge as a planet orbiting a star will cause it to dim just 1%. So what could possibly be big enough to cause a dimming of 65%? 
Well, when they were trying to explain about Tabby's star, researchers came up with two plausible explanations and one not-so-plausible explanation. The first plausible explanation was that large and irregular light curves were being caused by a massive swarm of comets orbiting the star. The second plausible explanation is that it's a distorted star that spins so fast it becomes oblate, meaning it has a larger radius at the equator than it does at the poles. So this produces higher temperatures and brightening at the poles, while the equator is consequently darkened. The not-so-plausible explanation is that a dimming is being caused by a kind of Dyson sphere, a gigantic sphere made of solar panels that completely encircle a star and have featured in several science fiction movies. Now, I know this podcast is all about astrophysics, but if you're interested in the genre, Larry Niven's science fiction classic Ringworld is a fabulous read. Sorry, Nadezhda. Meanwhile, Jason Wright, an astronomer from Penn State, told The Atlantic that aliens should always be the very last hypothesis you consider. But this looked like something you could expect an alien civilization to build, he said. Since then, neither plausible explanation has turned out to be all that convincing. Researchers have pretty much rejected the distorted star hypothesis and have calculated it would take 650,000 comets, each about 200 kilometres wide, to have transited that star, which isn't exactly plausible. Another one is possibly a protoplanetary dusk disk. So it's going to take a whole lot more research to figure out what is exactly happening with these two stars. But with Kepler expected to make new observations next year, we might not have to wait too long for answers. That was the Astrophys News. That's Astrophys for this week. See you next week. Radio Wave!